welcome to the Nevermore podcast. The Nevermore podcast is produced by the Three Little Sisters. The Three Little Sisters is an independent publisher publishing all sorts of different titles. Today on the podcast, we have our usual three sisters, Sarah, Giel, and Larissa. And today we're talking about animals as the protagonist or the main character. And uh, this is going to be a really fun podcast because I really, this is my bailiwick. I love animals as main characters being that... Um, my first memory of a child sort of crops up every once in a while when I think about this topic. And my favorite book as a kid was Are You My Mother? And I believe I forced my grandmother to read that to me every night um, and would go back to pages that she missed if she tried to skip them so I could go to bed sooner. So uh, for me, animals as main characters have always been there. I'm a huge Winnie the Pooh fan. And so have spread that love onto my daughter who absolutely loves animals as main characters too. So we're a big love about that. I also have an opportunity to interview my daughter and that's going to be a very special Nevermore podcast junior and she has some pretty strong opinions as animals as main characters and it was <laughs> fascinating to hear children's perspective um, because she was really uh, very cautious about it and kind of made a very valid points one of which was it's more difficult for a child to learn about things from an animal's perspective because they might take on that animal which I actually thought was a very interesting point for an 11-year-old to make. Um, a mature point. For very mature point, me. yeah. She just felt that uh, sometimes kids can learn better uh, from their parents or from, uh, you know, human characters than they can from animals in some cases. But in other cases, she made a very solid case for... Um, animals being the main character because for younger children it might be easier for them to relate to so i actually thought she made some really valid points and i'm really excited about that uh special episode that we're going to be releasing uh around the same time as as this one probably a couple days later so we're going to talk about really animals as the main character and we're going to start with um sort of a good question i think what is a positive for an animal as the main character for me it's that I think the animals allow you to kind of separate yourself from humanity so you can deal with problems through a different perspective and learn uh, different aspects of things and learn about nature through animals because it seems less luxury than through a human. But that's my perspective. Mine would be that, you know, and this is just to reiterate your stance, um, it's books that use animal characters as opposed to people at an emotional distance for the reader. And it, especially when that story message is either very painful or very powerful, it kind of softens the blow, so to speak. Right. And I also think that using animals as main characters or even like supporting characters kind of lets the author kind of push the boundary a little bit because a lot of the animals that are used are like wild animals. So you can really kind of push the envelope a little on what they're capable of. And you can explore various topics in a more relatable way, I think, for a wider audience. I would agree. I think that it's both. Um, and when you look at the history of um, animals in uh, children's books, this is a fairly standard thing that's been going on since the Victorian period again. Um, I know we seem to be circling around the same period of time, but really the Victorian era is when you sort of get 
the first published books. I'm not going to say that it was the era where first writing comes from because that's just not true. Mm-hmm. But it was where you started getting bound volumes, basically. Um, so a lot of the history for why animals were used as main characters in books was mostly for teaching purposes. There was a lot of like, you know, the letter A stands for alligator, B stands for bear. So <laughs> it was like early readers have a lot of animals in them. Uh, and you had sort of an adaptation for children's literature when school sort of came into existence. Um, really the first few that we have and as examples of this are, you know, Puss in Boots and um, Alice in Wonderland. And um, there's another one that I can't, it's like lost in my mind here, but the three little pigs. So you have like, Animals being used to teach children aspects of, you know, bullying, imagination, um, alphabets, counting, you know, basic things. So that's where kind of like animal, the history of it comes from. But nowadays, like, I think kids have a harder time reading books that are written with animals as main characters, unless they're kind of eight and under. Like my daughter was expressing this in our podcast. She was saying that for kids middle school age and higher, although they still enjoy those kind of books, they're kind of leaving childhood and moving to adulthood. And it's a little bit harder for them to kind of like get into stories like that because they, they, they're kind of like losing a little bit of their imagination. I think we don't re- kind of regain it again until you become parents. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. You know, there's a while there that you seem to lose your imagination um, or at least lose at least you'll deny that you have it and you won't deny your child self. Uh, you'll, you'll be like, Oh, I don't like Winnie the Pooh and uh, you know, whatever. There's a period of time. I think you, all of three of us went through this being teens where you push away childhood things. It's natural. Mm-hmm. So you're not going to look for books that have that in it. Uh, really. Um, so when we think about, you know, animals as the main character, I think you guys are making a very valid point. Sometimes, these stories really bring out things and sometimes they can be used to sort of convey points in different ways. What, um, when you think about books of this nature, do you guys have a favorite go-to that has remained your favorite, no matter how old you've gotten? Hmm. If anything, it's the classic Winnie the Pooh for me. Um, Again, just like the last podcast, I don't really have a favorite, but if I had to name one, it would definitely be Winnie the Pooh. A, because, oh, well, Canadian. Winnie's Canadian. And B, because it's a classic, obviously. The other one would probably be Alice in Wonderland, because Alice in Wonderland, for me, is a a mix of humans and animals, and it shows a lot of... You know, back then they didn't like talking about um, mental health issues. They don't like talking about it now, but it's a very, both of these stories are a very um, good kind of sidestep descriptor of what mental health might look like. The Mad Hatter, for example, Uh, he has mercury poisoning because he's a hatter and he's gone crazy. Um, Insecurities from the queen herself on how she looks. Uh, physical body dysmorphia is explained in that. 
um, the rabbit being very OCD and gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, gotta go, right? And anxious all the time. Uh, Winnie the Pooh characters were are reputed to be different parts of Christopher Robin. For example, Pooh Poo being impulsivity, Piglet being a representation of anxiety, Rue is autism, Tigger, everybody loves T-I-double-er, <laughs> is ADHD, and he bounces all over the place. I could tell you with two, with a husband and a, two kids with ADHD, Tigger is a good representation of ADHD. Uh, Eeyore is depression, Rabbit is OCD, Kang is social anxiety, and Owl is dyslexia. I'm a number dyslexic, so I have a bit of a... A connection to Al being dyslexic or a representation of. These are ways of talking about these issues without making them so serious that everybody shuts off and doesn't listen to the message. Yeah, I don't know that I have a favorite necessarily, um, but if I had to choose, I would say Charlotte's Web is probably, it was one of my favorite books as a child. It was one of my favorite books to read to my daughter. Um, so definitely Charlotte's Web, uh, Alice in Wonderland, of course. Um, I think I'm probably kind of in the minority where I don't actually like Winnie the Pooh. Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> we have found a so dislikers, Larissa. Um, yeah, I just, I never, I never got into Winnie the Pooh. My daughter loved it at, when she was younger, so I would read it to her, but I just, I never got into it. Huh. I, I mean, I'm not going to hold it against you. It's fine. Yeah. But, uh, you know, now I hate you forever. No. <laughs> lovers out there who are like, what? <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, no. The torches are coming for Sarah. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have to say, hands down, my favorite is Winnie the Pooh, but also um, Dr. Seuss and, and E.P. Eastman because they wrote Are You My Mother? And uh, for me, it just has a lot of memories. I, I think for me, Winnie the Pooh and things like that became part of my childhood because these were the ones um, that my parents would spend a lot of time reading. My dad actually would um, record himself reading because he had to travel a lot for his work as a lawyer. So he would record all these stories in advance. And it was super fun because he would make up all the voices and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, it became a favorite because it more like a nostalgic memory for it. Um, and when I, I introduced the movies to my husband, he thought maybe I had been like, you know, did you watch these while you were high or something? Cause <laughs> he thought they were really trippy. Um, a lot of the Disney films he feels are really trippy, like especially um, Dumbo, where he sees the pink elephants. He was like, oh, my goodness. And I was like, these people I mean, are like, have you seen Fantasia? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so uh, I, I love Winnie the Pooh. I bred Winnie the Pooh to my little girl. I used to sing the Winnie the Pooh theme song to make her go to sleep. Um, she has Winnie, had like a Winnie the Pooh nursery. Like I'm like a huge Winnie the Pooh fan. I actually have an autograph from Disneyland of Winnie the Pooh. So, um, that's how much I love him. Uh, because he's just, he, he's to me is like a part of my childhood, very ingrained part. Um, and I think some of the stories that, uh, involve Winnie the Pooh are important because of the fact that 
they deal with something that is inside of us. And a lot of it, it has to do with very painful loss and also accepting people who are way different. Like Eeyore is the most emo depression character in this book. <laughs> he's always sad. He's never happy about anything, no matter what you do. He's just my birthday. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and, but when you read the book, um, I mean, despite the fact that he was Disneyfied to be slightly less depressing in the book, he's like dark. Oh, like he talks about like disappearing and going away. And like, so it, it makes you like reflexively understand that people are very different in life and that not everyone personality is the same, but they still loved him no matter, even if he was this gloomy sort of thing. And that kind of thing also gives you, uh, you know, a door to open to talk to your kids about things like depression and suicidal yeah. ideation mm -hmm. without scaring the crud out of them, too. Right, and I do think uh, a valid point that Sarah shared in one of the articles that she posted for today's episode was that there's a quote here, and I think it's really good. Books that use animals as people can add emotional distance for the reader. So that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Like yeah. books like Winnie the Pooh and Velveteen Rabbit help you deal with loss, help you deal with depression, help you deal with growing up in a way that a human character may not be able to push. Uh, because when you have it through something, when children can separate themselves from dealing with bigger topics, it's easier for them to digest. When it's happening to themselves, they don't like it. Yeah. Uh, that That's why they can't watch movies where children are, you know, being hurt or anything because they feel it uh, and it's the same goes true in in stories in fact like Winnie the Pooh the very ending of Winnie the Pooh still gets me to this day and I still cry about that ending <laughs> um but he taught us how to say goodbye and for me as a child that was really hard to do I would I hated saying goodbye so my grandparents used to tell me oh don't you remember what Pooh said like Pooh said, no matter how far we are, you know, you'll come back and visit me. And they would remind me that it wasn't saying goodbye. And I'm just going to read the little section because it still gets, like, I still remember this vividly as a child. But this is when Christopher Robin brings Pooh to this special place and he tells him he was going to Skull, which is school. And they're saying goodbye. And Christopher Robin looks at Pooh and with his chin in his hand calls out Pooh, yes, Pooh, when I am. When Pooh, yes, Christopher Robin, I'm not going to be doing nothing no more. Never again. Well, not so much. They don't let you. Pooh waited for him to go on, but then was silent again. Yes, Christopher Robin, said Pooh. Pooh, when I am, you know, when I am not doing nothing, will you come up here sometimes? Just me? Yes, Pooh. Will you be here too? Yes, Pooh, I will be. Really, I promise to be Pooh. That's good, said Pooh. Pooh? Promise you won't forget about me ever, not even when I'm a hundred. Pooh thought for a little. How old shall I be then? Ninety-nine. Pooh nodded. I promise, he said. Still with his eyes on the world, Christopher Robin put out a hand and felt for Pooh's paw. Pooh, said Christopher Robin earnestly. If I am not quite, he stopped and tried again. Pooh, whatever happens, you will understand, won't you? Understand what? Oh, nothing, he laughed and jumped on his feet. Come on, where said Pooh? Anywhere, said Christopher Robin. It still gets me to this day, because it ends with, So they went off together, but wherever they go, and whatever happens to them on the way, in that enchanted place on the top of the forest, 
a little boy and his bear will always be playing. And it just reminds me of like how we're still always going to be there as children in this like hundred acre wood <laughs> fantasy world. And we can still be running around playing with our teddy bears. I think it's something that three of us uniquely understand being moms is that you got to be slightly returned to being a child when you had your children because yeah. you could pull out your puppets and your dolls and your like stuffed animals and put them all around and be like, oh, let's do a story time. <laughs> like, let's get our imagination going. And you kind of like could connect with them on this childhood level and allow yourself to be little again. And it's kind of a nice thing to do. You're more civilized. Me, I just go running around the house with the kids screaming like I'm crazy. <laughs> There were definitely a lot of stuffed animal tea parties and uh <laughs> a lot of those. My I have pictures of my father in law and my husband wearing like tutus sitting around my little girl's room. <laughs> and they were having like tea parties. A little pinky out too, right? <laughs> yeah, little pinkies up and they had tea. She would pour them a little tea. She had this like princess tea set where the teapot sang every time you poured water out of it. Oh so that's <laughs> It was really cute, and I have, like, lots of pictures of it, but I think it, like, allows us as parents to kind of go back to our memories of being a child and, like, reading those mythologies and those old books and those, like, fairy tales and classics and, like, kind of, like, just getting in touch with what it was like to be a child, and I think it's really, really, really important to do that because children kind of reflexively learn uh, from us, and the animal books kind of, like, give you this you know, like, oh, let's go back to what it was like to be little and read these fantasy, it, it, just complete fantasies. And it's really mm -hmm. a good thing to do. Uh, another point that this article brought up, which I think is really, really cool, is uh, the idea of anthropomorphism or talking animals. And she mentions in here, this researcher, that you can see how through these that children can introduce and deal with new and controversial topics because of the way anthropomorphic animals make this, you know, sort of difference. And she talks about how um, that life is very chaotic, <laughs> that there's no pause button. And so anthropomorphic animals allow you to kind of put a pause on things and reflexively look at uh, the structures of a story and how to use that to your advantage. Uh, one of the books that they actually mention in here that's really good for that is The Little Red Hen. I don't think I've read that in years. But it basically it's the a mother and her chickens plant uh, seeds, and they finally harvest their wheat on their own. And these animals around them don't do any work, and they don't do <laughs> – they try to steal uh, from this chicken, basically. But she teaches her children to share and they like bake the bread and make everything and put it out for everyone to eat. So it's more like a, a lesson on like you shouldn't be selfish and you should share. Um, so you can kind of do this both ways with both talking animals and non-talking animals, which I think is kind of really cool. So, Sheila, you brought up a good point here on the transmorphication or people turning into animals. So I'd like to hear what you have to say on that because that's really fascinating to to think about too well for one thing like we said you'll see anthropomorphism in children's books more often but uh that actually kind of translates into adolescence and adulthood where you'll see the transmorgrification of people or people morphing into animals 
Um, I don't have any examples of children's books where that happens because I didn't happen to to see any of those. But uh, I mean, it it provides a transition from childhood to adulthood and adolescence in between. Take for example uh, one that I really don't like or care for, but you know other people absolutely adore this one, Twilight. You've got your transmorgrification or people morphing into animals there. You've got your werewolves, you've got your Suki Stackhouse series where it's young adults. Um, then you have, you know, then you transition into things like Anne Rice as an adult. Or you're weird like me and your child and you're already reading Anne Rice and Stephen King and, you know, Nancy A. Nancy a. Collins. Um, but there's your transition from, you know, attributing human traits to an animal or an object and then turning it around and attributing people to animals. That transition into adulthood where you can actually take those types of ambiguous world events and ideas that you couldn't quite understand as a child and interpret them as a grown adult now. I can sort of help you share an example of a children's one because we talked about it in the fairy tale episodes, one of the three um, podcasts that we did on that. We actually talked about Rose Red and Snow White. Mm, and in yeah. that in that mythology, the prince turns into a bear and is stuck like a bear. So he actually did morph into a bear and morph back into a human. So you there's take Disney's, a few others. Um brother bears too and use that same example the beast. as well mm -hmm. yeah beauty and the beast um mm -hmm. it's just my, i had a brain fart in the moment so thank you larissa no problem <laughs> it's my bailiwick is uh disney lore but um it, you know I, because i i really do like i associate very strongly with animals for a lot of reasons but for me as a child because of the some of the really terrible things that I went through, um, books like this allowed me to have escape. So for me, it's more like it was a function of survival for me. And so I became somewhat of a childhood expert on like <laughs> um, everything there was to know about animals and literature because they helped me escape my world. And so it, they really were used for that for me. And so to this day, like I have no problem like pulling weirdo facts about <laughs> animals in literature um but there's actually a lot in the Grimm's brothers uh, mythos where there are people transforming into animals and back again like a lot um and this actually comes to sort of play in like uh heathen mythology and Sarah will probably have a lot to say about it but um uh, we have a lot of gods that were anthropomorphic they would turn into whatever uh we had them turn into like Loki could turn into a salmon a fox all kinds of other things like Odin transformed into a bunch of different things. Uh, anthropomorphism is very uh, synonymous with mythology because mm -hmm. there was a theory that sort of when you take on the personality of the animal, you become them. Um, and I'm sure Sarah has thoughts on she, she can share on this, but uh, basically it it is hugely meaningful in heathen mythology and pagan mythology mm -hmm. animals and humans like becoming each other or wearing each other which is another aspect that's kind of dark and weird uh, wearing the skins of each other is becoming that you well, are physically taking it on yourself 
Yeah. And this is where our two belief systems actually intersect quite a bit is as a Celtic shaman and druid, animals are the very centerpiece of my belief systems. Uh, each animal has its own human characteristic or emotion or vulnerability. Uh, Karananos himself turns into the dove, the stag, a deer. Um, you've got your Morrigan, who her three crows are very much her or her, her three ravens, crows, ravens, they're interchangeable for us because they're corvids. Um, that's her calling card is three crows. She's also the triple moon goddess. You know, it's very much our two belief systems intersect very strongly in that respect as well. Yeah, it's really interesting that you can really go back in mythology and see, um, you know, trickster gods from various cultures who could transform into, or shapeshift rather, into animals and then back into gods um and this was seen as something that they could bestow upon humans or heroes where they could therefore make the heroes also shapeshift and this was used to get out of trouble this was used to um utilize certain characteristics of the animals um so it's, it's very it's very interesting to see how how this was used early on. Yeah, I, I'm going to even take that one step further because when I was uh, wrote my book, Embracing Heathenry, there's a section that I got a lot of flack for, but it is actually proven out in history. So I, I do have facts to back my statements up, but um, I'm going to use this word very loosely, but the belief uh, in from heathen culture was that by consumption of the animal or like the author termed it to be like communion, but let's just call it consumption by consumption of the animal. You took upon yourself the strength of that animal. So if I ate a deer, I was a deer. If I ate a bear, I was a bear. And so they really, there was no separation between human and animal or human and divine because it was all from the same source. So you could take on the physical characteristics of that animal. And we know that, from the lore of berserkers and Celtic people have the same thing. Wearing of animal skins was becoming the animal. It was a physical manifestation where you would work yourself up to become like an animal to allow yourself to get in sort of this frenzied state and attack. And this is where like the sort of dark side of uh, mythology and animals as main characters kind of like come to a head because there's a lot in mythology, like the big bad wolf where mm. Animals are used to express violence. Yep. And through the animal, uh, the reason for it is because to separate them from the human meant that humans were therefore not responsible. So it was okay to kill the wolf because the wolf ate the grandmother and, and Red Riding Hood. It was okay to go and kill, you know, uh, it was okay for this dwarf to steal from this the bear and Red Riding or Rose Red and Snow White because, again, bear so a bear doesn't have the same rights as a human being so it allowed mythology and stories to kind of use it as an excuse <laughs> to get away with things like murder and and death and remove responsibility and to even flip that you know it was also used as a way to for man to express their base 
animalistic nature, I guess. So certain things that the gods would do, well, they were in an animal form, so it, we can't put morals on that. Exactly. So it was also used on, as a flip side to excuse some of this bad behavior as, oh, well, they weren't people when they did it, so. <laughs> yeah, like the birthing of Slepnir. So if yes. anybody wants to read some weird mythos, read that. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, 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 these tales really are pushing the boundaries of, like, sort of excusing behavior, as Sarah said, because there are a lot of links to um, actual physical acts that took place in the natural world. And a lot of them we would look at today's lens are were quite disgusting, and I'm not advocating for any of those, thank you. Uh, I believe in, in animal rights like I do with human rights. But a long time ago, the rights of animals were, to kill an animal was to kill a person. Okay, so there was no distinction between human and animal. But it, it, the mythology and the folk tales allowed for that distinction to be made. So you could then see that it was just a goat, not a goat that was your god. You know, right. like, so it allowed for the separation. And that's, you know, interesting. Um, I think one of the really good examples of that is in the Mowgli story. Because you have this child who's raised by wolves, who becomes animal. He's no longer human. And because of that, he's allowed to behave in ways that a human would not. He can go out and hunt animals. He can hunt freely without any uh, sense of like it being wrong or weird. Uh, And so it removes his morality, I guess human morality, and gives him more like animal morality. But I think these stories kind of were written at a time where we didn't quite understand animal morals. Because when you look at today and the research that has been done, it's been proven out and borne out that even predatory animals have an extremely ethical uh, behavior that monitors like how they kill. And there's evidence to this, like amongst wolves, there's a very strong idea that animals also have some kind of moral system. We don't know what that is, but it's there. So I think you can kind of sort of see them as moral, you know, they're not, they are, sentient beings basically and you should treat them like sentient beings so um let's talk a little bit more about the darker side of animals as main characters and animals in general in stories let's talk about the insanity of watership down and how that sort of adapted into this subset of children's stories where you have a much more darker and deeper element than you know originally uh, was born out. So does anyone want to take on Watership Down and first or? Unfortunately, I can't help you ladies. I've never actually read it. You've I never read it? Either. No, oh I have goodness. never read Watership Down. I've never yep. seen the movie that they made out of it. Okay, well I've then, I guess it. I'm all by myself. Um, yep. <laughs> so basically, Watership Down is an, uh, a very crazy story about these rabbits who kind of foresee their future. One of them actually has full-on seizures in the movie, seeing this horrific apocalypse of rabbits that's supposed to come. Um, basically, that's what the story is. And these rabbits kind of bound together to go to war with this other group of rabbits and it's it's a very very dark 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 story like people in it get killed um there's a lot of religious symbolism in it and it's just an insane like 
if anybody reads this, you'll understand like how crazy it sort of is. But um, I, I guess I can kind of use this as a leap off point because I didn't realize that neither one of you have ever seen the movie or read the book. But um, it just symbolizes a more dark side of mythology, a more dark side of things. Like, I'll just read you a small section of a point of this movie was that uh, one of the young rabbits is a seer. Okay, and they received frightening visions of his Warren's imminent destruction. When his brother fails to conceive their chief rabbit of the need to evacuate, they set up on their own. And basically, uh, the first challenge that they meet is that they end up at this military style castle and they um, end up going to war with this other group of rabbits. Like, it's, it's an insane story. Okay, and this poor rabbit that keeps having these visions keep seeing like this apocalyptic uh end of rabbits and basically the whole film kind of ends with them almost being destroyed um it's a very strange 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 book <laughs> uh and i've always been surprised that it was placed sort of in children's literature um because it's not really a children's book it's really it has a lot of language in it that's a little bit advanced um and isn't really for children. It just sort of ended up in that category because of the fact that it had anthropomorphic animals in it. And so I think you can kind of use this to leap off of to other books that are sort of dark. Um, like Animal Farm. Like Animal Farm <laughs> or um, The Secret of Nim. Mm -hmm. Like you have not always the animals that are featured as main characters are necessarily good. And I, I, again, I think this kind of gives you a sense of like animals can be used to tell a variety of tales, um, both positive and maybe somewhat negative. Um, and that's where I think you can kind of see like the genre of Watership Down led to other books like that. You guys should really should read it or watch the movie at least. Uh, there's actually a series on Netflix now that's based on the Watership Down or a new version of the movie has been made. Um, it's just a very strange, very strange book <laughs> and movie. Sounds <laughs> um, interesting. <laughs> it, it, it's just weird. Um, and that's, and it's okay, but it kind of like led us to animated films where animals would be talking more like Watership Down kind of like opened that floodgates <laughs> to like allow for um, other movies of that similar nature like the same guy who filmed watership down also made uh fievel the uh american tale movies and uh the secret of nim and uh, there was one other one that he made i can't remember it now but the same uh director actually made all of those oh fern gully that was it so he, he was big on using animals as main characters and mostly because he wanted to get back at warner brothers so um, he made this whole subset of films, and it was kind of uh, interesting. Uh, the other ones are much nicer. Like, I don't know if anybody else has seen American Tale, but it's it's a very cute movie. But it, it also hits on hard topics. Like in American Tale, you have this, it's a movie about a Jewish group of mice that are traveling to America on the boat. Uh, and, you know, Fievel gets lost and separated from his family. But it deals a lot with racism in there. Like, yeah. there was a lot against uh, Jewish immigrants in that film. <laughs> like, quite a lot. Uh, Fern Gully deals with, like, 
how humans are destroying everything. I actually think it has one of the coolest evil characters of all uh, that I've ever seen in a children's film in that the radioactive toxic waste becomes this enemy and he rises up, you know, above to kill these fairies. And he like talks about how he like loves man because man like feeds him. It's, it's a very good film. If anyone hasn't seen Fern Gully, um, amazing film to talk to, to or show your kids about environmentalism. So do you guys have any like sort of favorite bad guys that are animals? I guess is what I'm getting at. Skr, yes, Skr, <laughs> and the hyenas. The hyenas always make me giggle because of the way they laugh. That one crazy hyena makes me laugh. Oh, my daughter loved him. <laughs> you guys like uh, Scar? Mm. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> He's like that, the epitome of evil uncle that you can associate with the creepy uncle at any family function. Like, he's the creepy one standing in the corner, mm. glaring at everyone. <laughs> yeah, um, it's hard for me because I, the villains don't stick in my head as much as, you know, the good guys do. <laughs> um, but I, I have to actually say uh, the... Uh, I think his name is called Radic or something like that from the great mouse detective. That rat scared the crap out of me. I was terrified of him. Like I was like, Ooh, he's mean. Um, so I didn't like him at all. And I think that was the only one that I kind of felt like was kind of like evil and weird, but my most favorite defeat the villain moment is uh, Anastasia, where she turns around and tells Rasputin Las Vidania right back in his face. That's my favorite beat the villain moment. (laughs) I have a lot that uh, were kind of, you know, ooh, got that one, you know. I'm actually watching a really good show. It's kind of off topic, but I think it's kind of cool. But uh, The Hunters on uh, Amazon Prime, it's a amazing show. This group of people like basically are hunting down former Nazis. And uh, the way they're telling the story is just amazing. And if you like seeing like bad guys get it in the end, it is a wonderful show for that. <laughs> like every bad guy gets get, you know. Um, but it's hard for me with with animal specifically because there aren't actually that many bad animals in stories. There aren't Got really it. that many. Jaws. And Cujo. Yeah. You make a point you on the Cujo. That, that one, when I was a kid, scared the crud out of me. And I'm um, like yes. one of the weird kids that loves horror. I was terrified of Cujo. Um, my brother was a huge, you know, Stephen King fan, huge horror fan in general. And uh, he, yeah. So he introduced me to Cujo when I was quite young. <laughs> Same with Jaws. And, uh, yeah, I was afraid to swim for the longest time because of Jaws. And, yeah, Cujo just scared the crap out of me. <laughs> They're so realistic, right? Oh, Especially my gosh. Cujo, you could realistically end up in a situation like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. So let's a little bit touch on about um, the Disneyfication effect and Warner Brothers and animation sort of just a little bit. Um, obviously, animals are much, much easier to deal with than humans because it, to us it doesn't matter like 
I think children can accept what an animal like looks like regardless. Like you could put a messed up thing like, well, I mean, uh, oh my goodness, the movie just went out of my head. But uh, the one where uh, Pixar did the one with all the emotions, Inside uh, Out, what was it called? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and they have that th- this creature in there. Um, what the world was his name? He was like a pink elephant thing, and he was her imagination. And he made these like bizarre like dolphin noises and would cry candy and stuff. It was really weird. Um, but. I think about that and I think to myself, like, kids could probably almost be sold anything being an animal, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. like anything. It doesn't matter. It could be an imaginary thing. They don't, they don't see it that way. Like we do. Like if you sat a human, like an adult human in a movie theater and put on like, you know, just three hours of an animated movie, I think at some point we would zone out, but kids are like totally in it. Like they, they're in it. They're, they feel for these characters because they can relate to them. So what do you think is a positive thing about Disneyfication when it comes to, like, uh, the scale of animation that's used to teach kids, you know, better lessons, I guess, than could be learned through, like, human films? Well, um, well, obviously, it's so that it makes the, the blow of, of the situation a little softer. Mm-hmm. Um, animals just get children's attention. You take a kid to a zoo and you see how enamored they become. You give your kid their first pet and you see how enamored and wide-eyed and odd they become. The, I mean, animals and children are just two peas in a pod. They get each other. They hear each other. They literally have this emotional link. And the Disneyfication of, of that kind of, of situations, like adult situations, makes it easier for us as parents to take that as a teaching tool and say, okay, this is how life works, and to soften that teaching tool until they're old enough to really get it on a different level or a deeper level with different words. I agree, and it's, you know, some of those very touchy subjects that I think Disney can deal with through animals, through storylines like that, where if they were to use human characters, it would just be... It would be lost on them. Lost on them, or characters. it would be emotionally just too much for them. Yeah. Although, in the feels, Pixar, seriously. As an adult, you hit right? me right in the feels. What in the world is up with you? And don't ever watch that little short with the cat and the dog. Oh, my goodness. Anyway. Oh, I've seen <laughs> that one already. I've already been hit in the feels by that one. Oh. They are very good Twice. about, I don't, they must be doing some serious, like, psychological research, because <laughs> every single film lately is like, oh, man, that just sucked. You know, like, they have a psychology in. team in that office, I'm telling you. Yeah. Yeah, they're totally ri- riding parent emotions. Um <laughs> What I really think, because, I mean, I'm a huge Disney fan, so I don't really care what they do. They can't do any wrong in my eyes. Well, they have. But, I mean, in my my world, it's hard for me to split them from, like, the corporation that I have issues with and them. Um, But, I mean, I love Disney. I will go to Disney. There's really not much for me to say about them. I really appreciate what they've done in terms of talking animal films because they really help lead the way in creating that type of animation and if they weren't there you know Pixar wouldn't be there at all um where I kind of feel like 
I have harder time is with Warner Brothers because I feel like a lot of their films focus on animal on animal violence, uh, like Tom and Jerry or like funny. Yeah, coyote, I mean, wily coyote. It was a lot of violence. Oh yeah, <laughs> and a lot of racism. Although there was some of that in early Disney. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I, but for me, like, if my child's gonna watch violent things. I kind of see cartoons being different because you can disassociate yourself. So if they're going to watch like, you know, like uh, I, I relating this to the Simpsons, for example, if they're going to watch like itchy and scratchy hit each other with bats, like I don't really think it really teaches them to hit people with bats. Like, they're not going to learn. It's a teaching tool to show children <clears throat> what reality versus fantasy is. Yeah. I guess they're not going to, what I'm saying is I think parents worry too much about like, oh, should they watch this type of animation where, you know, they're blowing each other up and stuff like piggy in the brain or whatever. I don't think so. I really think that kids kind of look at that as being really silly and they're not mm-hmm. going to like try to do those things <laughs> like, yeah. just because they are. I honestly I think we don't that. give them enough credit to <clears throat> yeah, I think people think reality versus stupid, you know? fantasy. They're not that stupid. Exactly. Understand the difference. Yeah, I really think that people uh, really mistake how brilliant children are and how um, introspective they are and how they can make these decisions, you know, sort of on their own. I mean, talking with my daughter about this very topic made me realize that she knows kind of what books that kids like, and she really saw it totally differently than I did. And it was really fascinating to hear, like, her opinions on how she felt about reading books that dealt with loss because she said, she said to me like, she took it really hard. And I was mm-hmm. like, Oh, I felt kind of bad <laughs> reading that to her, but because she related to them and like, she said she could relate to, you know, the Velveteen rabbit because she's like, she's lost stuffed animals before and it broke her. And it made me realize that kids see it totally differently than we do. And so it's, it's good to understand that. And I think we, you know, I don't think you need to worry too much about watching cartoons with your kids. They're really not going to pick up the behavior from a cartoon where they're going to pick up behavior is from you and your behavior and the way you react to things is how they're going to pick up cues to behave. And if you're making a big deal out of that, about it, so are they. (laughs) So, Mm -hmm. you know, look at that because if it wasn't for anthropomorphic films, you wouldn't have the creation of things like Disney uh, like things like um, Sesame Street, uh, all the shows on Disney Junior, all the shows on Treehouse TV in Canada, all the shows like that we have that we rely on as parents for that five minutes apiece. Like but Peppa are, Pig and exactly, but are educational. <laughs> like some of the best shows I watched with my daughter when she was younger taught her math. Like Bubble Guppies has math in it. Yeah. Like yep. they they do help kids learn. And it's really important, especially when they're five and under, to give them as much education as you can. And Sesame Street is a vital tool for that. And if it's puppets or animals Mm -hmm. or whatever it is, teaching your kids, hey, let's go through the letters, let's learn how to count, it's vital that they learn those skills. And kids relate to those things. You know, like Kermit the Frog is the most beloved frog on TV, as he says. So, uh, you know, I think it's important to kind of like have these things in, in our children's lives. 
And you can't forget the Frank Funk Beckers, where we have our Teletoon, oh, yes, our Teletoon. Caillou, and yeah, Hi. we have our French versions too. Chippy and Beano. Chippy and Beano was my favorite as a kid. Oh, I miss that show so much. We watched the English version, and it was the funniest. Like the show was amazing. Like if any. In, can find it on YouTube that's in America have your kids watch Tupi and Beano. Oh it, you love it you will it love Tupi and Beano. Yeah. It builds imagination like no other show I've ever watched like it actually takes the kids like it's about this cat and mouse that live together uh, uh, there's a big mouse and a little cat and basically every day they open up their doors and they're like oh let's go on an adventure and they basically open up their door and like they're in the ocean and they like completely make up these stories and it's it's an amazing show like totally cool so i really highly recommend tupi and vino so to wrap it all up we're gonna read a small little piece from the velveteen rabbit because we mentioned that this is a favorite of a lot of people on this show and um, my daughter asked us to read it because this is her favorite and she wanted me to read the very ending of it because she said this is where she felt the most connected to the story it says Autumn passed and winter, and in the spring, when the days grew warm and sunny, the boy went out to play in the wood behind the house. And while he played, two rabbits crept out from the bracken and peeped at him. One of them was brown all over, but the other had strange markings under his fur, as though long ago he had been spotted, and the spots still showed through. And about his little soft nose and his round eyes, there was something familiar. So that the boy thought to himself, why, he just looks like my old bunny that was lost when I had scarlet fever. But he never knew that in reality it was his own bunny. Come back to look at the child who had first helped him to become real. So with that, we're going to wrap up this podcast and wish all of you to keep checking out our website. As during the month of April, where we're going to be focusing on animals as the main character, we are going to release Sue's Flight a cute little story about an elephant who wishes that she could fly and finally learns how to do so. So we hope that you keep checking out our website at www.the3, that's the number three, littlesisters.com. Thanks very much for joining us and see y'all next time.